0: happen to have a Bible with you this morning, would you go to Romans chapter 10? Romans chapter 10, whether you've got a hard copy or maybe it's on your phone. Here's a cool thing, that song that uh, Michael led you in in uh, Psalm 23 that he put to, uh, to song. He had the privilege of leading that grandfather to Christ two years ago. How awesome is that? He can actually do that song with great authority and purpose in a funeral when you know that that person knows that they know that they know that they're not in the shadow of death, but rather they're with God forever. That's great. Wonderful stuff. Romans chapter 10, and last week we took a little deviation. We started looking at the story of Jonah and the whale as it relates to Romans chapter 10. And and if you didn't miss that, you can catch it online. People are watching online right now along with us as we study this this morning. And maybe if you want to see how that Jonah story fits in with this, you can go back and watch that. But what we learned through the midst of it is that when God offers grace to us, when He extends the offer, grace demands a response. You've got to do something with it. It's not just enough to hear it. And that was a reality for the people of Nineveh that Jonah went and spoke to. They had to do something with it. It was available to them. It's available to everybody, but you've got to respond to it. Look with me on the screen at Romans ten twelve. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name, Scripture says, of the Lord will be saved. Well last week we had that story with the, the detour with Jonah and one of the things specifically that we learned is that God doesn't play favorites. And Jonah was really confused because he thought that God played favorites. And why should he bother taking the word of salvation up to those people who have no interest in the things of God? Why should he even waste his time? And so he rebelled and ran the opposite direction, but he learned the hard way that God does not play favorites. He extends his grace to everyone who asks, but grace demands a response. Now, the remarkable thing is that even though Jonah wrote the book of Jonah, and he did that in 800 B.C., 750 B.C., Eight hundred years later in the first century when Paul's walking the planet, the same people group, the same social circle that Paul has of the Jewish nation still has a disdain for people who live in other regions. They, they thought that those individuals who are Gentiles had no right to the things of God. So the Jews still had this disdain for Gentiles and to the degree that they would actually practice this particular habit. When they would travel to a foreign land to another country, when they came back to their own land of Israel, they would actually take their robes off, shake their robes, the dust that was gathered on their robes from walking, and knock all the dirt off so that they wouldn't dare carry any of that Gentile dirt into the land of Israel. They would take their sandals off and knock them together on the border so that they wouldn't dare track any of that disdaining Gentile dirt into their land to the degree that if you found a Jewish person who was thirsty. They would actually, rather than using your cup to drink from, they would rather cup their hands because they wouldn't dare touch a Gentile cup or fork or spoon or plate and wanting no association. If you're new to church, you're wondering what a Gentile is. In the Bible, there's only Jews and Gentiles. That Gentile is anybody who's born on the planet that's not born Jewish, so Paul's got a problem. He's got a group of people who think that God's love is only for them. And so there, these individuals are reluctant to have any dealings with Jewish with Jews or having any reluctance to have any dealings with the Gentiles, and they especially loathed the thought that they would have to talk about those Gentiles with God. So you come into the first century, and you find a problem. More and more and more individuals are coming to faith in Jesus, especially Jewish people are coming to faith in Jesus. And as more and more and more come to faith in understanding who Jesus is and that He is Lord of all, many others are turning fiercely against Him. And just as Jesus warned in the book of John, He said, there's going to come a day when they're going to cast you out from the synagogues, they're going to torture you, they're going to stone you, they're going to kill you because you belong to Me. Don't be surprised when that happens. So for that group of people who really hated the Gentiles, nothing could be more devastating than to hear that He's Lord of all, that there's no distinguishing between the Jews and the Greeks. And if you believe that you're far superior to everyone else, you cannot tolerate that reality. So when Paul writes Romans 10:12, he writes something really, really hard. Look with me on the screen at Romans 10:12 and 13. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Somebody better say amen to that one. Whoever. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord. Now, as we've been seeing, it's for everyone, but it's not for everyone. It's out there. Grace is available. He extends it because He's the Lord of all. It's for everyone, but it's not for everyone. There's parameters. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, there's got to be a desire, there's got to be a response. Everyone, therefore, has to have an opportunity to hear. That means there's somebody who's got to reach out. Somebody's got to extend the offer. And that's why we ended two weeks ago with verses 14 and 15. Look at me on the screen. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. You might remember if you were here a couple weeks ago that preacher doesn't mean what I do up here. It means somebody who's willing to talk about the things of God. Now remember that component about how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news because it'll come back around to us full circle in just a minute. This is gonna go pretty fast. There's only a couple verses. Go with me to verse 16. However... They did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? In other words, they didn't all listen to the gospel even though it's been put out there. Although the good news is proclaimed, not all respond. As a matter of fact, many don't. So even in the Old Testament, Isaiah was feeling this exact same thing. So Paul quotes Isaiah. Who has believed these things? Look at me on the screen at Isaiah 53.1, Lord, who has believed our message to be true? Now, if you're a Bible person, you're a church person, you know most likely that Isaiah 53 is where Isaiah started writing about the suffering servant, all the things that he wrote in advance about what Jesus would look like hundreds of years in advance. But very few people in Paul's social circle gave any credible weight whatsoever to the claim. They're just saying it's too hard to believe. It can't be true, Paul, that you can have a relationship with God just not by works, but by hearing that the grace is extended to everybody. Don't I have to do something? Don't I have to earn God's favor in some way? So he says, well, the problem is they're not heeding what they're hearing. There's only one Greek word in your notes this morning, and it's this word heed. We use the word heed in the English language, but in the Greek language, it has a much more definitive meaning. You see it on the screen there. So it's got this thought. Not just hearing something, but listening attentively. And then as a result of listening attentively, actually obeying. Now, this issue came to full circle with me this last week because... Um, Our firstborn son, Adam, who lives in South Carolina, he came up for the week and he brought up London and Davis with him. And London is five years old and Davis is three years old. And then our secondborn son, Derek, brought his son, Caden, over to our house. So I decided to do the great intelligent thing of putting all three of those little buggers in a canoe and taking them out on the pond, okay? So it's just me and I've got the the three little ones, two five-year-olds and one three-year-old and they're both in the canoe with me and I'm taking them out on the water. Now, I was giving specific instructions to London and it sounded like this. London, don't look over the edge of the canoe because every time you do, you lean and Papa goes up in the air like this. And she heard me but she didn't hear me She was not heeding what I was saying, so constantly my wife is shouting from the shore. And by the way, they all had life jackets on, okay? I didn't clarify that part last night, and people came up to me, 20, 30 people saying, they had life jackets on, right? Uh, Just to save you the tension, no, they didn't flip the canoe over. But my wife was on the shore yelling, London, stop, stop, because every time London got to the edge of the canoe, she would look over and sure enough, the canoe would tip up like this. This was very real to me because I understood this word I'd just been working with in that I was imploring her, listen to me and then obey in response, but a five-year-old doesn't really want to do that. Now, the tragic thing about the gospel is this. The tragic thing about the offer of the salvation that God has made is that it's made to all, but not all heed it, not all listen. The good news actually has to be taken. It's got to be received by those who hear it. And that results in the decision to believe. Otherwise, it's just information. It's just information if you don't actually respond. So grace demands a response. The most beautiful way to describe this, I think, is the most beautiful verse in the Bible, and it's known as John three sixteen. Just drink it in as you read it on the screen. For God so loved the world, and he gave his only begotten Son, God himself saying this, that whoever believes, that's the response mechanism to heeding Whoever hears this and as a result believes they're not going to perish. Now, Dr. Luke records something fascinating going on in the first century during the time that Paul's writing the book of Romans and and the events that took place in Jesus' life. Dr. Luke records those things years later. He looks back on that period of time and he says, something fascinating was happening. Watch with me on the screen what was going on. And he says this in Acts 6-7, the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Obedient to the faith is just a synonym for becoming believers, believers in Jesus. So you've got these individuals who are in the hotbed of Judaism who are recognizing who Jesus is, and they're becoming believers in Jesus also. But while many did, many others did not. He said, I want nothing to do with that. And Paul's heart is breaking over this issue, so he says in verse 16, who has believed our report? He's just like Isaiah writing in Isaiah 53. Who has believed that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son? Many refuse to heed it. So with a final barrage of quoting the Old Testament, Paul brings face forward this issue that he's doing life with people in his social circle, who are living in a state of unbelief, and I bet that's true of you this morning. I bet you've got people in your social circle who know about Jesus, but they've never heeded the word about Jesus. And so you can really relate to what Paul's writing here because he says, these individuals in my life, they're doing it by choice. Watch verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So you've got to be really clear on this. This message, when it's heard, when people start drinking this in, it's the word of Christ. In other words, Jesus speaks when the gospel is proclaimed. Did you know that? It's God's own words being spoken. God's own voice is confronting. God's own voice is offering reconciliation. So if someone in your world has said, I've never heard from God, I've never heard God speak, you might want to bring him to this passage and you're going to have to explain it to him. So you want to pay attention to this. God says He's the one who's speaking whenever you hear the gospel proclaimed, because it's not my gospel. It's not Michael's gospel. It's not Peter's gospel. It's not Paul's. It's God's, and God is the one speaking because He can be the one who will say, I'm the one who loves. You didn't chase after me. I chased after you. I'm the one who extends grace. I'm the one who extends forgiveness. This is God's gospel. So this in reality constitutes the power of God for salvation. I'm going to ask you just to think back two years. It's been two years since we started the book of Romans. Can you believe that? I know some of you are thinking, yeah, I can absolutely believe it. Others are saying, no, it's gone really fast. Think back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. What is the power of God, Paul? The power of God is the gospel, it's it's God's voice. That means proclaiming the word is actually the central purpose of evangelism. I want to be really clear on this because the purpose then is not to manipulate people into faith. You, You got people in your life who don't know Jesus that haven't heeded the call, you cannot manipulate them into faith in Jesus. It won't work. You can't manipulate and you're not supposed to do that. Your responsibility then is to authentically proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Speak truth to them. This is what it's done in my life. This is how it's affected me. That's how you can bring the gospel forward. So if you want to bring this to an ending, what he's talking about here, and I know it seems like it's a fast conclusion, but just hear me out on this. In summation, he's saying faith in Christ absolutely depends on hearing. In order for them to hear, they've got to have somebody bring it to them, and then they can hear with understanding, which then demands a response, because grace demands a response. So here's Paul's conclusion in verses 18 and 19. But I say then, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. You've got to read that in proper context. The reason there's capital letters all over in there is because he's quoting Psalm 19. He's making an argument about the fact that they've actually heard. Can it be that they actually have never even heard? Maybe they just don't know the gospel. Maybe the friends you have in your social circle have never actually heard. Maybe that's why they haven't responded. So consider what Paul's doing here. He's, he's building a case. Is it that they've never actually heard? Now I want you to think about the time frame he's writing this in. He's writing this perhaps 25 years, maybe 27 years after Jesus' death, 25-plus years, give or take a couple, after the events of Pentecost. Why do I bring that up? Well, Acts records that Pentecost, the events of Pentecost, the arrival of the Holy Spirit on this planet as a result of Jesus' death and resurrection was so profound and so magnificent that people from all over the world, nations, heard the gospel in their own language. And they went back and they told their own people groups. It was such a dynamic, historical event that everybody could point to it because it had happened in their lifetime. It'd be like you pointing to the events of 9-11, 17 years ago, something phenomenal happened on this planet in that buildings were brought down in New York City. If you were alive during that period of time, you could say, I I remember that. That's very clear to me. Paul could point to that. He could point to the historical event of Pentecost and say, see right there? It is so powerful. Look at what happened. But instead of doing that, he points these individuals who are familiar with God's Word back to God's Word. He points them to the Old Testament. Now, keep it in context. He's working throughout the Mediterranean Basin. He's got all his co-workers with him, and they have been announcing the word of truth. And his people have labored hard, but his social circle is hearing these things, and is it possible that they they could hear it and not understand it? Well, there remains that possibility. Maybe they've not understood it, and in all fairness, that's got to be addressed. So Paul raises these last two concerns before he finishes chapter 10. He says, is, is, has there been a legitimate opportunity for them to hear? In verse 18, he responds, of course, indeed they've heard. Indeed it's been made clear to them. So he leans into Psalm 19. Now, why does he do that? He's quoting the Old Testament again. Well, here's why. Because Psalm 19 is such a powerful declaration about the word going out without voices actually being spoken. Here's the way Psalm 19 reads The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament show forth His handiwork. It goes on to say that day after day, the stars, the constellations in the skies, they cry out, they scream forth. Words are going out, and it says there's no voice actually heard, but it's speaking. It's crying out, there is a God, there's glory for this one who created everything. So Paul leans into Psalm 19, and he says, there's voices, and there's words that have gone out, and that's the message that awakens faith. Colossians speaks of this exact same thing. Look with me on the screen. Colossians 1.23. The gospel that you have heard, it was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So Paul's people group, his social circle, they can't be excused on the thought that they've not heard the message. He's saying there's a voice out there. There's words out there. God's making it known. Even King David understood it in the Old Testament. So the voice that's going out, the words going out, that's referring to God's revelation. And it's been proclaimed to everyone who's ever lived and ever will live. So just as the heavenly bodies declare and they reveal God, so his gospel has been extended to the ends of the earth. Paul's arguing this that, is it possible they did not hear? Well, no, it's not possible. It's out there for anyone who wanted to look into it. So here's how he ends. He ends. He brings Moses and Isaiah to the witness stand. Look with me at the next verse. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they, or understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And here's his second and final concern. Has there been legitimate opportunity to understand? Well, his answer is essentially like this if an uneducated group of people like the Gentiles, if those people who had no relationship with God and they could understand, certainly the chosen people have no ground for saying they could not understand. So he quotes Moses because 1,500 years before Paul is walking the planet, Moses is on the planet. And he writes down for the Israelites saying, there's a day coming when God's going to make you jealous. There's a day coming when God's going to make you angry. Because he's going to reveal himself to a people whom he had no relationship with. So God says, I will make you jealous with it by a nation, with people who are not a nation. I'm going to make you jealous by a people who have no relationship. So here's a remarkable twist. Jesus uses that exact same setting when he tells the parable of the vineyard owner. Someday I'd, I'd love to do a series with you on the parables of Jesus. But just let me explain this one to you. Jesus is with a group of people, and he says, let me explain the kingdom of God to you. It's like a landowner who owns some land that's agricultural in its nature, and he decides he's going to enter into a contract and lease out his land to some people who want to grow some grapes for a vineyard because they want to make wine. So Jesus goes on to explain this setting that the landowner enters into a contract with the vineyard growers... And the vineyard growers have a responsibility that when they raise the crops, they've got to share some of the crops with the owner of the land. That will be their rent. That will be their payment. Here's the background on it in Matthew 21, verse 33. There's a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and then went on a journey. Now, Here's what Jesus goes on to explain, when the day came for rent to be due. He sent his people, because he's in a distant land, he sent his people to collect payment. And when they showed up to collect payment, the vineyard growers, instead of paying the landowner, they decided they would stone, beat, and kill those who came to collect payment. So the landowner says, when he hears about this, how could they treat my people this way? I'll know what I'll do, I'll send my own son and they will certainly regard him with high regard and they won't harm him. So the landowner sends his one and only son to collect payment and they kill his son. The landowner becomes so enraged that he seizes his land, takes it back, and gives it to another people who will treat it fairly in the way that they're supposed to treat it. That's the backdrop in which Paul writes of this very situation when he's quoting Deuteronomy 32, that God made a really calculated move. Very intentionally, Israel as a result becomes jealous through a nation that has no understanding, And if you transfer this over to the New Testament, the Gentile response to the word of God surpasses that of Israel. Those who had no relationship with God whatsoever respond to him and become more responsive, and Israel has obstinate hearts against God. Do you know what an obstinate heart is? This is what it looks like. Think back to eighth grade history class when you learned about a guy by the name of Galileo. So Galileo lives in the 1500s and early 1600s, and he's known as a mathematician and an astronomer. And he begins writing about his findings that he discovers that the planet Earth actually revolves around the sun, and the sun does not revolve around the Earth. Remember, guys, hearing about this and learning about this? Okay, so during this period of time, everybody believed, everybody thought that the universe rotated around the Earth, and especially the solar system. That the, the, the earth was at the core, but along comes Galileo, and he embraces this understanding that, no, that that's not true. I've looked through my telescope. I can support the evidence. I can prove to you that the earth actually rotates around the sun. So an inquisition is brought against him because in the Catholic Church, they thought this was heresy. How dare you say that the earth is not at the center And so they bring him before and put him in an inquisition setting and they have judges before him and he does something very, very clever in that setting. He brings into that setting his telescope and he, in the midst of his argument, says to them, I I know your position, I understand, I thought the same way, but let me show you something different. Will you just look through the lens of my telescope? I will show you. The earth rotates around the sun. The members of the Judicial Council of the Inquisition said to him, we will not look through your lens. We know what we know. This is the way it works, not the way you say it works. So you have a choice, Galileo. You can recant or we will put you under arrest. How do you want to choose? That was 1615. Galileo died in 1641 under arrest dying for what he believed. He was locked up the rest of his life because he knew what he knew. He looked through the lens of the telescope. He understood the evidence is right there with this exact same hard heart. Paul's writing against these things of these individuals. are looking at the evidence, the information. They're saying, no, I will not believe. And from the New Testament time to the present time, many people refuse to even consider the gospel So his argument is this, if the Gentiles with no background with God and no understanding of the good news, they get it, surely Israel can understand this. So therefore his argument is the ignorance is not based on a lack of truth. It's not because they don't know, they did know. Consequently, they have no excuse. So he finishes it this way. Verse 20, and Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Verse 21, but as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. I want you to bear down in verse 20 for just a minute. I was found by those who did not seek me. Do you know who that is, church? That's you. That's you, New Hope. God says, you didn't chase after me, I chased after you, and I was found by those who did not seek me because God manifested himself to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We know him, we have relationship with him now. He's speaking of you. So Paul has just firmly established Israel's rejection. It's no surprise to God. The rejection of the Messiah, it was known beforehand, but as for those who ignore his clear word, he says in verse 21, all day long, I've been like that dad on the porch, my arms outstretched. I want you to come back and it made me think of the prodigal son. So in a couple of weeks, we're going to actually look at the story of the prodigal son. I want to look at it through the lens of Romans 10 because that's our God. He stands on the porch with his arm outstretched waiting for that son to come back that he can embrace. John Kelvin back in the 1500s was looking at this and he came to the exact same conclusion and he wrote this, John wrote this in 1540. God stretches forth His hands to us exactly as a father stretches forth His arms, ready to receive His Son lovingly into His bosom. What I'm about to say, I'm not saying judgmentally in any way, but hear this. What a monumental failure on the part of humanity. What a monumental failure for God to stretch out and reach, only to have people say, I'm not interested. I don't like the way you've designed it. Why do people reject? Because of self-righteous pride. See, the rejection of Jesus has nothing to do with a lack of opportunity. It's willful. So if you're wondering why do so many people reject the gospel, if you talk to people in your life who have rejected it, why do they do that? It's simply because of a pride factor. They want to earn the relationship. They want to do things to make God like them. So Scripture clarifies in 2 Thessalonians 2.10, people perish for one reason, and this is the reason. Those who perish, they do so because they did not receive the love of truth so as to be saved, 2 Thessalonians. I came to a bit of a quandary this week as I'm working through this. How do we end this? Because there's a danger you and I could walk out of here feeling really self-righteous today. could be like, I'm glad I get it. Too bad they don't. Really grateful that I get it. I got my ticket punched. Really sad that they don't get it, but I'm good. I got it. The converse should be, do we, like the Father, stand on the porch with the arms stretched open wide, ready to draw in? Do we, like Paul, cry over a lost nation or our social circle, our, our neighborhood, our coworkers, the person in the cubicle next to you? Do do we reach out in that same way? But as a result of not only hearing and knowing that people need Jesus, do we act on their behalf? So I had a conversation with a married couple um, recently, and they relayed this story to me. I'm I'm just going to close this with two stories now to bring this point home. They relayed to me that they, as newlyweds, moved into an apartment complex, and they really felt a burden, they, they attend here at church, and they really felt a burden for the person who was in the hallway across from them, another young woman. And they wanted to talk to her because they kept seeing her in the parking lot. They'd see her in the hallway, and they wanted to talk to her about their faith in Christ, but they were really nervous, and you probably can identify with this. Um, She said to me, my heart was just beating in my chest, and I felt my blood pressure going up. I was getting all red in the face, and I didn't know the right words to say, and I kept resisting. And she said, so I would go into my apartment, and I, I would pray, God, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to do? I want to talk to her about who Jesus is, but I feel such resistance. And she said, every time I would go to the door, I'd say, oh no, I've got to go get groceries or I've got to go take my car to the car wash. And she would come up with reasons not to knock on her neighbor's door. And she said one time she was in her apartment praying and there was a knock at her door and she opened up the door and there was her neighbor, this young woman standing at her door. And she said to her, I kid you not, I think you might be a religious person. Could I talk to you? Right? Okay, you don't go, God's going to bring them to you. And so she's standing at her door and she said, I'm reading this book by an author by the name of Tim LaHaye, and it's really scaring me. I don't know how to answer the issues. Uh, Tim LaHaye is, is a great author. He writes really great Christian material, if you haven't looked at this stuff before. So she's, she's got questions about this book. And she says, I I want to help you with this. Let's talk it through. But would you do this with me? Would you agree to go with me to my church next week? And she said, absolutely. And so she brought her to church, and that other young woman came to faith in Christ at church. And she said, you know, the most remarkable thing, Mark, is that six years later, that woman who became a good friend of ours and a sister in Christ, she led my daughter to faith in Christ. How God brings things... Full circle back around when we would take that step to just say, I need to be the beautiful feet that would bring good news. Which leads me into this closing story. In West Africa, there's a particular mission work among medical doctors, and one medical doctor relayed this situation about a man in the village that he was working in who had elephantitis. And elephantitis, if you're not familiar with it, is a swelling of the lower part of the leg. So from the knee down, sometimes higher up, the leg swells out so big it makes it look like elephant legs. And can be 8, 10, 12 inches wide. And this particular man had elephantitis. The missionary doctor led that man to faith in Christ. And he became so overwhelmed with the thought of the grace of Jesus Christ that he decided, I've got to tell everyone in my village now I don't know what you know about elephantitis, but it's extremely painful to walk on the feet, the legs, because they're not only swollen, they become bloody, they become leathery, and the nerve endings are just incredibly inflamed. But yet that man made his way from hot to hot to hot to hot, telling everybody in his village about Jesus. When he ran out of people to talk to, he decided, I'm gonna go outside of my village. So he found the next nearest village to go to. And he did that successively. Week after week, he kept spreading out to villages around him. But it became so prohibitive, eventually because of the pain in his legs, he didn't know how much further he could go. Ultimately, he reached all the villages in his immediate precinct, his area, and he said to his friend, the missionary doctor, I feel such a burden to talk to people about Jesus. I've got to go to the next furthest village, which was 10 miles away. The doctor said to him, you really can't do that because the damage to your legs will be irreparable. You can't travel that far. For weeks he labored over this desire to talk to that village, and one morning his family woke up only to find his bed empty. At 6 o'clock in the morning, he got up and he started walking 10 miles. He made it there by noon that day. And without eating, he went right into every home within that village, telling every single person within that village about the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, the sun is setting, and he decides, I'm going to make my way back to my own village. And he begins the 10-mile walk back. By the time he arrives at the outskirts of his own village, his legs are so swollen and so bloody, and the pain is so overwhelming that he makes it to the porch of the missionary doctor's house, and he faints and hits the porch with a thud. The doctor comes running out of his house. It's late at night, and he finds the man with these bleeding, swollen stumps, and he picks him up along with the aid of some other individuals and brings him into the house and begins washing the feet that are so beautiful that brought good news of great joy to all of those people in that region. Mm -hmm. What overwhelmed me about that story was that we as a people living in 2018, we become so overwhelmed with a passion for fashion about how beautiful feet look. The world would never look at that man's elephantitis and say, there's some beautiful feet. But Scripture would say those are beautiful feet. They carried the good news of great joy, which would be to all people. So for our own church, and this is the way I prayed in the previous services, and I hope you would pray with me this way, I want to pray that God would increase the fervor among us to share the good news, however that looks in your world this week. Maybe it's the person in your neighborhood. Maybe it's somebody in your own family. Maybe it's simply praying more consistently for someone in your life who's not yet a believer in Jesus. I would like to pray with you that way that although we have a fervor for the things of God and God's blessing our church, we never want to rest on that lest we become self-righteous and say, look what we've arrived at, but rather that God would increase it. Would you pray with me that way? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning and for the opportunity to look at your word with such intensity that you can bring conviction. But the conviction doesn't mean anything if it doesn't result in behavior on our part. So we pray that you would spur us into action, Father. Right now, in this setting, we could feel like we're emboldened, but it can quickly fade when we walk to our car. By the time we pull out our car keys and we drive away and we get dinner, we can begin to forget. So God, I'm asking for a a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, that you would take what we feel in this moment and you would carry it over to tomorrow and next Thursday and two weeks from now, that we would continue to be bold on behalf of the kingdom that you've established, Father, that we would take what we know to be true about the Lord Jesus Christ, and be faithful to speak of him. So God, give us beautiful feet. Give us beautiful feet that will preach. I pray now for your blessing to rest upon us, for having spent time in your word this morning, and for studying what your call is upon us. Send us out with your blessing, Father. We ask for that in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.